taken back by Darlene. Uh, Ristolainen got it ahead. There's a pass across. Olison. Olison. Back it comes to Eichel. Score! Hey now, welcome to season 10, episode 10 of the Sportscasters. Is it season 10? Is it season 9? Yeah, season 10, episode 10 of the Sportscasters. I am Steve Bennett. Uh, Thank you for joining me today. Good show coming up. Um, Zach Meisel is on the show. Pat Lapard is on the show. We're going to close off two books we've been working on in the book club. Uh, Pat, of course, wrote about Andre the Giant and Zach, the 95 uh, Cleveland Indians. Two really good interviews. Uh, I think we'll start off with baseball and we'll do Zach first. Uh, Then we will update the book club. I'll let you know where we're at after finishing those two books. We have one left over and a new one to add. So I'll tell you that in the book club. We'll do some plugs and one last thing. I know there's probably a lot of people out there. Uh, and some of you have already said it to me, who are hoping that one last thing tonight will address uh, what's going on with Drew Brees. I don't think I'm going to do that. Uh, I sent a few tweets out about how I felt about it. You know how I feel about it, and I'm going to leave it at that, I think. Uh, Today, as I record this, it's June 16th. It's my daughter's fourth birthday. So one last thing about life as a father four years in. Uh, I'm sorry. I just don't think right now, I don't think I can do it right now, to be honest. Quickly, before we get to the interviews and the rest of the show, a pretty big day in Sabres uh, land today uh, as Jason Botterill uh, was fired out of what seemed to be thin air. Uh, He had gotten the uh, dreaded, I suppose, uh, boat of confidence from Kim Pagula uh, recently. Uh, But she says the uh, extra time to think and discuss led them to this decision today to fire Botterill, who pretty much everyone wanted fired. Um, so no one was that upset about that. However, uh, very, very, very quickly, uh, they named Kevin Adams uh, the general manager. Now, initially, the thought was he was the interim general manager, and they would do it most, if not all teams do, and interview people and hire the best candidate. But they clarified and said, no, this is the general manager. And then, of course, they did a Zoom press conference uh, and they clarified that further. And then after the press conference, uh, they gutted the organization and fired everyone. Um, Look at Kevin Adams has zero experience as a GM. So I can't tell you uh, how I feel about him being the GM. I don't know what to expect, but he's a quick riser. You know, it's not long ago that he was running youth hockey leagues at the Harbor Center, which is adjacent to the to the arena. And now he is, you know, essentially the head of hockey operations here. He's the general manager. 
and he's got a draft soon and free agent decisions. Uh, Sam Reinhart, I think, his deal is up. I'll have to make a decision there. So it's an important year for a team that's missed the playoffs nine straight times. Now, an interesting thing about this I was thinking about today, the Sabres finished 13th out of 12 in the playoffs, and they played less games in Montreal, finished two points behind them. I think they played two less games. And the day that the season was shuttered, they were in Montreal waiting to play them. If they had won that game that night, if the season lasted one more day and they win that game, they're the 12th seed. And Bonnerill is not fired, I'm sure. At least not right now. Um, so interesting how that worked out. I'm willing to give Kevin Adams a chance. Um, but I have no real faith in the Pagulas. Uh, they've been horrible owners. Right now, I'm sure they're in the bottom three. Worst owners in the National Hockey League. Um, they talked a lot about economics and cutting back and spending less money today, which is scary because anyone who's lived through July 1st, 2007 and the uh, darkest day in Sabres history with both of our captains, Chris Drury and Danny Briere, leaving hours apart for Philadelphia and New York, respectively, essentially ending the best two years of my lifetime as a fan. Uh, that's a scary thing to think about what might happen if this team went back to not being a at-the-cap team. Now, the Pugulas didn't say that, uh, but they did talk a lot about economics and efficiency and things like that, so we'll see. But they're garbage. They got very lucky that they hit on two very cheap first-time hires at their prospective jobs on the Bills' side and Bean and McDermott. Uh, similar to the way the Saints got lucky in 2006 with Loomis and Peyton. Uh, so, look at I'm going to give Kevin Adams a chance. I have no idea if he'll be good or bad. I feel like even if he's bad, he won't be worse than Botterill or Murray. So, I don't know that there's a lot to lose by making the decision to hire him. Like, I don't think it's possible to be worse than the last two guys. So there's nowhere to go but up. He's either as bad as these guys, which, okay, or he's better, which would be great. Um, but I do not have much faith in the Pagulas, which is a problem because they own the team and you can't fire them. So just a minute or two on the Sabres there. <laughs> I tried to get Jack Eichel on this podcast quick anecdote a friend of mine is a good friends with jack eichel and uh jack was doing he seems to have abandoned it but some sort of a uh, music tournament on instagram and one of the things i've loved about eichel for a long time is his love of really great music and i reached out to the friend and said reach out to jack and see if he'll come on it's a good time i know he's got some downtime uh, but Jack, I guess, declined and said he's taking a break, but he'd do it someday, which means never because I'm not going to go back to this guy again and try to get him to ask Jack to come on. And Jack's never going to go to him and say, hey, I really want to do that podcast. I got no fucking idea what it is. So it's probably a dead issue, but I tried. <laughs> Maybe someday. Really no big deal. Interviewing athletes isn't exactly what I do here. Although we've had some on. Deuce McAllister was on. John Smoltz was on. Those two come to mind. I'm sure there's been others. Uh, but 
today's show. Let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about the 1995 Cleveland Indians uh, with Zach Meisel. All right, our first guest today is a graduate of the Ohio State University, and he covers the Cleveland Indians, among other Ohio sports interests for The Athletic. He's making his debut on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to Zach Meisel. Hey, Zach, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Steve. How are you? Good. How's Cleveland? You know, it gets a bad rap, and at least until the Cavs won the championship a few years ago, it was the butt of every sports joke, but... You can't beat the Cleveland summer. I don't oh, know tell me about if it. It's the same as Buffalo. Oh yeah, like we're, I mean, we're Rust Belt brothers, you know, Buffalo and 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 Cleveland, and I felt it in my heart, you know, when LeBron James made that block and Cleveland won. I was like, I felt great for Cleveland, you know, because it felt like it could happen in my city too, because we're so close and so similar, and you know. Um, like even like football, you know, like the the drive and the fumble. The Bills have like you know the missed kick, and the Sabers have no goal. Mm-hmm. You know, like the frustrations and the economies and everything's very similar. The same lake, right? We just never set our part of it on fire. But um, you know, I feel <laughs> I, I feel it's, I've spent many days in Cleveland. You know, many concerts. I've been to baseball games. I've been to. I'm a big Saints fan, and I got to see. Uh, Drew Brees and Sean Payton's first ever game was in Cleveland. Um, I got to be there for that. And, uh, yeah, so I spent a lot of time in the city and, and feel a, uh, a brother, a brotherhood to its citizens and its, uh, culture and all that. But yeah, I, I feel like the people from the cities who not the LA's and the New York's and Chicago's of the world, like those Midwest cities that are like decently big, but not that big. That's like Milwaukee. cold in the winter. Like yeah. the people are people are loyal, man. They love they love their towns. They love their sports teams, and they love to hate on anybody who says a bad word about their cities or their sports teams. Well, the the book is called Cleveland Rocked, um, and it's about the '95 Indians. I, I'm a when I was. Growing up here in Buffalo, we didn't have a major league team, obviously, and really the only team I could watch every day because this was kind of before the uh, the RSNs. Um, so I watched the Braves every day because they were on every day on TBS, you know. So mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time watching the Braves and then also driving to Cleveland during the summer on vacations and going to Jacobs Field when it just opened. I remember the first time I ever went to Jacobs Field was the day after the OJ chase. And it was like <laughs> 99 degrees. It was like the hottest day in the history of Cleveland. And uh, But it was just so... And you know, cool. Manny Ramirez, being Manny being Manny, right. thought that it was his teammate Chad OJ who was in the white Bronco in the police chase. <laughs> and of course, the players got quite a kick out of that that's amazing uh 
why the 95 team? Like, say, like, why not the 97 Indians or, um, you know, some other team? What really first attracted you to, you to the 95 group? Yeah, so it, it's it was the perfect storm. I mean, it was the Indians were a laughing stock for decades. They were never good. From 1954, they won 111 games. They were swept in the World Series, and they didn't sniff the playoffs again until 1995. So you had 41 years. They were always in the basement in the American League. Um, you had certain seasons where they'd like pop up and win like 84 games, and you'd think, oh, maybe this is finally the tide's turning. And it was never the case. And I mean, they made the movie Major League is about the Indians for a reason. Right. And so 95 comes along and. In the late 80s, the Indians finally committed to a plan for the first time in, in decades where they were going to strip it down and build from the ground up through the draft, make some trades, really try to develop players for the first time. But by doing that, they were committing to more losing. Only this time it was, it was guaranteed to create some losing seasons instead of just crossing your fingers and hoping you'd have a winner, which never worked out. So they have four or five miserable seasons, but they see the light at the end of the tunnel and they get the the right legislation passed to build a new ballpark. And they have this plan come together where when Jacobs Field opened in 94, they wanted to have a team that was competitive. And they thought if we do that, we have a good team and we have a new beautiful ballpark that people will want to explore. That's how you can build something. And that's how you get more revenue and you get more people wanting to come check out your, your product. Cause they played at Cleveland stadium on the lakefront and it was decrepit and, and run down and you'd sell out opening day and the scene would be cool. Cause you'd fit 75,000 people in the stands and then there would not be, you wouldn't crack 10,000 the rest of the year. So it was just, everything was fresh and new and 94. They, they add a couple veteran free agents to complement all these young players that they had developed and then the strike hits and they were just hitting their stride and, right. and just figuring out how to win. And it was almost a good thing for them because they got a taste of how good they could be. The individuals like Albert Bell, Kenny Lofton, Jim Tomey. Um, but then they came back the next year and it was, okay, we know that this can work. So let's just take off the training wheels and go for it. And so for the city of Cleveland, which hadn't experienced a winner, period since 1964 and hadn't experienced a good baseball team in 40 years it was like the thing that's special about baseball is it's it's the heartbeat of your summer you get to sit down every single night and either go to the park watch the game listen to the game while you're doing something else and throughout this six-month journey or it was a little shortened at the beginning because of the strike so five months it just became this journey that everyone wanted to be a part of and that was so foreign to Cleveland fans um, that it just it, it really captivated everybody like never before. And not to mention, you have a lineup full of future Hall of Famers. You have a really good pitching staff. You win a hundred games in a shortened season. Like just everything went right, and everything played out more perfectly than the people in the front office could imagine. Uh, me personally, I, I was a young kid that summer. It was basically my introduction to baseball, to sports in general. Um, and it's, you can ask anyone in Cleveland, you know, even if like the 2016 Indians 
came a rain delay from a World Series. The 97 Indians had the lead in Game 7 in the ninth inning. But, like, that 95 team, I think everyone agrees, would have wiped the floor with the other teams. It was just so good. Yeah, They just ran into a good good pitching staff in the World Series. Let's talk about this, the stadium for a second because it's – it's still Jacobs Field to me, right? I'll never not call it that. I'm sure you're the same way. Um, there are I, like 38 T-shirt companies in Cleveland, and I think everyone has a T-shirt that they designed that says, like, it's still the Jake to me <laughs> right, Jacobs right. Field. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's funny. Because um, we have those T-shirt companies in Buffalo, too, and they're like, you know, I'll have a no-goal shirt or something, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I grew up, like I said, three hours away and was in Cleveland – I don't know, 40 times before Jacobs Field was uh, built. Never thought to go to a baseball game. You know, then they built it, and I've been there probably 30 times, you know, since. Um, And it was good timing because I think Camden Yards predates it, but that's almost it in the baseball stadium boom, you know, and, and the novelty of the kind of throwback stadium that they were building was still so fresh and really it was kind of perfect timing to build it and it's an amazing place to go see a baseball game um no matter really where you sit i've sat all over and of the stadiums i've been to the only one i like better and it's just by a smidge is pnc park but you know, mm-hmm. some nights I like Jacobs Field, but, you know, it's they're close. It's not even fair to say I like one better than the I love them both. But what about the stadium getting built and the timing of it and its role kind of in the 95 Indians? Yeah, I mean, there are people with the Indians, a lot of them, who say that ballpark saved baseball in Cleveland. Um, the Indians, I think it was 1989, um, they had to pass a referendum to get this built, and it was the agreement included not just the baseball stadium but the basketball arena next door because uh, the Cavaliers were playing in Richfield in the middle of nowhere um, about a half hour or so away. And so it, it completely revitalized downtown, and you had this separation where the, the Indians were sick of being a tenant at the Brown Stadium, and it was like the second they finished a game, they were remodeling the ballpark to look to resemble a football field, and it was like they, they knew they were second fiddle, and, and it wasn't even close, and they, they wanted their own place. But they also knew if, if this didn't get approved, you had contingents in Tampa and in Colorado who were just ready to pounce. And those two cities thought they were going to get a team um, and the referendum passed 51% to about 48.5%. And if it doesn't, the Indians might not exist. You know, we might be talking about the 1995 Colorado Rockies, which who existed, but they would have existed in a completely different sense. Um, so it's it was imperative. And then when you get it passed, they had a few years to plan and to it's not like they hit on everything, you know, things went wrong. They had to decide whether or not they wanted to stick with Albert Bell through all of his antics as he came up through the minor leagues. They had to nail certain draft picks and certain trades. And it was just, you had this perfect timing. And, and a lot of it was because they knew 
the ballpark was going to open in 94. And, you know, it's held up really well for a quarter century. It's still beautiful. Uh, yeah. They made some, yeah, they made some renovations about four or five years ago. Um, and it's, it, it's so rare. I, I want to say Cleveland is one of very few cities with all three major sports teams that isn't like a New York, LA, Chicago, uh, type like that. And they have three different stadiums, three different venues for all these teams, right smack dab downtown. Right. Philly is within like a handful of blocks. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So Philly's it's, cool it's how they're all on like that cool. one exit. You know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut mm-hmm. you out. You know how Philly, you're driving down that bridge and they're all kind of like right over there. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Do you remember your first time there at the stadium? I don't, I think I have a ticket stub. I don't remember. Okay. Sometime in the mid nineties. Yeah. The thing is like with my, I'm 30 and I, <laughs> most of my memories are like being a high school kid or a college kid going sure. and buying cheap seats and moving down. But a lot of those years, the Indians were terrible. And so it was, it was an easy practice because, you know, no one wants to go see the 2009 Indians who, lost 90 some games and so okay i'll buy an eight dollar ticket and move down which was a common practice in the 60s 70s 80s and even early 90s at the other venue yeah yeah i'm just a little bit older than you so i was i think 15 and 95 so when the stadium opened you know i was like a freshman in high school and like going down there that summer is such a treat uh you mentioned things going right and you know making the decisions about albert bell and you know you think about Manny Ramirez, they get him at 13th in the draft, and that was the year that Brian Taylor was number one. You know, so not only did he not go one, then, you know, 11 other teams don't draft him, and the Indians draft him at 13. What about putting the team together sticks out most to you? Is anything anecdotally, and I know you touched on a few different things in the book about building the team, which I enjoyed, but does anything stick out as, like, a seminal moment of putting the team together? Yeah, I think a couple things. I mean, I think the way they capped it by they signed Eddie Murray and Dennis Martinez and they introduced them on the same day. It was early December in 1993. And that was basically them saying, let's go green light, full steam ahead. Um, I mean, it, it was, it was a process like they retired of Albert Bell and, and, Hank Peters, who was still in charge at the time, was telling other people in the front office, like, we got to get rid of this guy. We can't put up with this anymore. And then you had certain members in the front office saying, well, he's our only prospect. If we cut ties with him, we've got nothing. And this whole process has been for naught. So, like, hanging on to him and, and, I mean, the Manny Ramirez draft was pretty interesting, too, not just for the 95 team, but Later on, when he became the centerpiece in that lineup, you think about they almost went with pitching. They really liked Aaron Seeley, who went on to have a nice career. They liked Alan Watson, who pitched in the majors for a while. Um, and they were they didn't think other teams knew about Manny Ramirez because he was kind of a he popped onto people's radar late. They were wondering if they could maybe snag him in the second round and go with a pitcher first. Um, and then John Hart went and visited. He watched one of Manny's last games before the draft. And I think Manny went like four for four and just was spraying line drives all over the place. And um, the scouting director at the time 
basically compared Manny Ramirez to Roberto Clemente. <laughs> Mickey White was was from Pittsburgh, had experience with the Pirates, and said, he was like, if I always told myself if I had the chance to draft the next Roberto Clemente, I wouldn't pass it up. So John Hart was like, all right, if you have that much conviction, let's go for it. And and so it, it's like so many things that are normally a crapshoot. Like they, they trade Eddie Taubensy for Kenny Lofton. The Astros didn't really believe in Kenny Lofton. Um, the Indians needed a center fielder. No one knew he was going to become this guy who could hit 320 with 75 stolen bases. And, and it just, the player development worked. The players just kept developing. Uh, they had a good trade for Omar Vizquel. They traded Felix Fermin and Reggie Jefferson, who were two veterans who they didn't need anymore. Omar Vizquel couldn't hit at all in Seattle. Didn't hit a ton in Cleveland, but hit enough and won a gold glove every year. Like It's just like every little thing they did seemed to work. This the stuff that mattered. I mean, again, they didn't like nail everything, but when they did when they did hit on it, like it again, like the lineup was full of guys who were either Hall of Famers, could have been Hall of Famers if not for injuries or PEDs, or will eventually be Hall of Famers. It's it's pretty incredible. And I know the baseball draft is complicated because there's a million rounds and you know, guys get drafted twice, you know, in high school, but then they don't sign. They go to college and they get drafted again. But we talked about Manny being, you know, 13th overall. And then you think like, oh, well, Jim Tomey must have been, what, the fifth pick in the draft or something, you know. But he was like in the 13th round or something crazy, you know. And Albert Bell, I think, was maybe second round too. But just kind of like to mm-hmm. the point where, you know, these are guys either acquired in smaller trades that were also like Kenny Lofton. Yeah, they got him in a trade, but he was also like a 17th round pick. You know, he wasn't like a, you know, a 1-1, as they say in baseball or anything like that. So, yeah, I think, um, like you said, a lot of things just lined up and, and some amazing. Um, Nagy, I think, was the other big first rounder, right? Wasn't he like the 7, 15, 16, 17th pick or something when he was drafted? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just, you find guys who... Like, Jim Tomey never would have become Jim Tomey if they didn't have Charlie Manuel as a minor league hitting instructor who worked with him on his swing and his stance and changed everything. Like, he wasn't, he came up as a shortstop. Like, it's hard to imagine that. But they just, whatever they had working in the front office and the coaching staffs, it was, it was contagious and it worked really well. You talked about. Um, adding the big veterans and uh, announcing them on the same day. And the 95 Indians remind me a lot of the 1994 New York Rangers, um, you know, in the sense of a team the Rangers hadn't won since 1940. And uh, they were built, you know, obviously drafting guys like Mike Richter and Brian Leach, but also trading for Mark Messier and then trading a guy like Tony Amante, their future late in the season for Craig McTavish, older guy, going all in, I guess is my point, you know, and really making a mm-hmm. run for it. And the Rangers had a game where they hadn't won in Long Island in like a long time, and they beat the Islanders going into the playoffs and kind of said to everyone, like, okay, here we go. Is there a moment like that for the Indians where they weren't just a team in a new ballpark that were young and fun and winning all these crazy late games and things like that, but like a, a real big moment in the season that said, this isn't just fun. This is real. And this team could win a world series. Yeah. So that's the weird thing about this team is that 
it was so new to them. Um, I think, like, they traded for Ken Hill during the season. Ken Hill was a Cy Young finalist the year before um, and was with the Expos. And, um, like, they needed, they wanted a starting pitcher for the back of the rotation. And um, he, he was a guy who made sense for them. I think St. Louis traded him. But that, that's not your move that's like, all right, this is the one missing piece that's going to make the difference. Uh, that was just for a little bit of added depth. I think the, the strange thing about the 95 team is they kind of made those moves beforehand. I think they knew revenue was going to be really good with the new ballpark. Season, their ticket sales were through the roof. Actually, as we record this, today is the 25-year anniversary of day one of their sellout streak, which oh, wow. was a record at the time until the Red Sox passed it. But they sold out every single seat in that park for six years. Um, and so they knew they would ha- they had money, so they could go out and sign Eddie Murray and sign Dennis Martinez, convince these two veterans who have been in the World Series, who have played for a long time, this franchise that is synonymous with losing is ready to win. So they were able to bring those guys in. And then a few weeks before the 95 season started, they signed Oral Hershiser. I think that might be the move maybe that would fit kind of what you're referencing, where sure. he was he was a playoff warrior. He had tons of history. They didn't know if he was going to be at the top of his game because he had had pretty significant shoulder surgery in the past, and they didn't know how much he had left in the tank. But it was a way of saying, like, all right, we have all this young talent. Let's surround them with some leaders, some guys who have been there and can show everybody the path to October. And that's how it played out. And, and the thing is, like, they, it wasn't like they caught fire in June and it was like, all right, let's capitalize on this. Let's add it. Like, from day one of the season, they, they knew they were really, really good. And that's, that goes back to 94. They kind of proved to themselves that they had a lot of talent. So, it was it was more of just a season long thing. I mean, they clinched the division on September eighth, three weeks before the season ends. Like no one does that, right? But they didn't they didn't want to rest. They could have played all their bench players and their prospects for the last three weeks, let guys heal up and, and recharge their batteries. Nobody wanted out of the lineup because they wanted to see how good they could be. They wanted Albert Bell wanted to see if he could hit fifty home runs. They wanted to try to win a hundred games, even though it was a one hundred and forty four game season so like there's just this hunger that i think all the right circumstances have to create normally you don't get that right and they were awesome like like you said right away like in may you know if you look like i was looking at the baseball references like win 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 loss you know win 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 you know it's like wow and they, and they became that team and, and there's usually a team like this in baseball every year maybe not quite like this where that you didn't have them beat until out 27 you know they had so many late mm-hmm. you know and continued right into the world series in game three especially sticks out in my mind um of them being that team um that you just you don't you don't have them until you have them uh let's talk a little bit about the playoffs because it's a like it's it's the first year with the extra round um and they play boston and they sweep that and then i remember when they played seattle I remember watching as a kid and thinking, well, the cool thing about this is no matter who wins, it's going to be a really fresh, fun team in the World Series. Mm -hmm. You know, will it be Griffey or will it be, you know, Bell, you know, which slugger and which cool, 
you know, team that hasn't won in a long time will it be? And they win that, and then they play the Braves in the World Series. And I love uh, whenever you, <laughs> I love whenever you read, like if, you, if there's a World Series video, the like the VHS tape is on YouTube. If you go to the comments, it's just all Indians fans like bitching about the strike zones during the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I just I admire that about it. But it, it was really a, a great underrated World Series. So many stars. Um, you know, great games. Uh, I'm sure Indians fans are like still waiting for Carlos Baerga just to get one big hit. I mean, I don't know mm-hmm. if you researched this at all. I'm not sure if there's an answer, but like, has there ever been a guy who made the last out that many times in the World Series with the tying run in scoring position? I mean, I think three different I mean, times. Yeah, there's no way. It, it could never have happened, right? I mean, I feel bad for Carlos Baerga because like you watch that like that VHS I'm talking about when you watch the World Series, the the story of the World Series like that, and it's like, oh, Bayerga's up. Oh, winning run, tying runs on base. You know, like here, big hit. No, pop up, pop up, pop up. He just couldn't get that big hit. Maybe that's why they didn't didn't win it. But um, what about the the playoffs or the World Series? I mean, you detail it incredibly in the book, and we're kind of having fun just kind of anecdotally talking about it and previewing it. But is there any stories that stick out to you about what made that, playoff run or the world series special yeah the, the so two moments stand out i think to indians fans the most one they haven't played in the playoff game in 41 years and the first playoff game was like it was like a rejected hollywood script i mean you're playing the red sox there's two rain delays the game didn't start till after eight o'clock anyway and it goes to extra innings. Albert Bell hits a game-tying home run in extra innings. The Red Sox accuse him of corking his bat. Of course, that was an entire episode the year before. He flexes his biceps, which is like the most iconic pose yep, I can in Cleveland it. history. Yep. <laughs> they made a bobblehead of it. Um, and then the Indians win on a walk-off with the most unlikely home run hitter at 2.08 in the morning. And it's like, all right, you waited 41 years <laughs> For a playoff game. Here's a game. Yep, here's a game. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So, like, that that certainly stands out. Um, I think everybody in Cleveland remembers Kenny Lofton scoring from second base on a passed ball in the eighth inning in game six of the ALCS in Seattle. That pretty much clinched the series. Um, It was, you know, it was a weird series. First of all, the Mariners, like, give them credit. They were 10 games out in September, and then they had to win a like a, an extra tiebreaker game against the Angels that Randy Johnson pitched. Then they go and play the Yankees. They fall down 2 nothing in that series. They come back and win. Randy Johnson pitching in relief in short, on short rest in game five. Yeah, the famous the win. Off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mattingly in the dugout, crying. Yeah, and the Griffey sliding. Yeah. So it, it's interesting because if that series goes different, you're probably talking to a Mariners writer right now sure. about – like how what an incredible season Seattle had. So it was, and, and not only that, all the home field advantage rules were screwed up because they had different rules in place for. It was the first year, so it was they didn't really know what they were doing. They had rules in in place for cities that had football and baseball in the same stadium. So like, um, see, like different cities couldn't host certain games, whatever. The Mariners had home field advantage and the Red Sox had home field advantage over the Indians, even though the Indians had 
the better records. So right. the Indians so the knew they had to win. Yeah, so the Indians knew they had to win a game in Seattle, even though it probably shouldn't have had to go that way. It was just a weird series. Like game one, because the Mariners used everybody against the Yankees, they had to throw this rookie who had like four career starts. Nobody knew who he was, and he dominated. Bob Walcott were like, oh, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, so it was funny hearing guys 25 years later saying like, like I can't believe we lost to that guy. I don't even remember his name. Right, who the hell is Bob uh, Walcott? Right. <laughs> so it was just like like anything that could happen in the playoffs seemed to happen, and it was it was just so fitting because Cleveland had waited so long for that. Um, obviously, like like the the World Series strike zone is something that stands out and frustrates fans. Look, I mean, we you you can't undersell how good Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz are and were. Steve Avery was really good that year too. Um, I mean, you're talking three Hall of Fame starting pitchers. Were they given wide strike zones? Yeah, probably. It was it was really fun listening to players still gripe about that 25 years later. I mean, in the <laughs> book, Kenny Lofton went on such a rant that I was like, okay, well, I, I highlighted it. When I was reading it, I highlighted it. <laughs> I was like, I can't just write this. Uh-huh. Like, I was like, I got to just give him his own page in the book and just let him go. Um, and like even Jim Tomey, who is like the nicest, soft-spoken guy, everything to him is neat or cool. Even he was like in his polite way criticizing the strike zone. So you know that that's something that the Indians, and that was kind of digging at them for a long time, still is. Uh, but it, that World Series was underrated from the standpoint of every game was close. Yeah, 5-1. And, and like games. you said, yeah. Yeah, Carlos Baerga was standing at the plate with the game on the line three times. And who was standing on deck every time is Albert Bell, who was the best hitter in the league that year. So um, you could even argue maybe if you didn't have the light hitting Omar Vizquel hitting second, things would have turned out differently. Yeah, like you said, it being an underrated World Series, I mean, you have to get all the way to game four before there's a game of more than one run separation. The classic 11-inning game in Game 3. You know, um, Maddox and Hershiser have, like, an incredible duel in Game 1. And then um, the incredible performance by Glavin, you know, um, strike zone or not. Oh, and the rematch between Hershiser and Glavin in Game 5. Um, and then the Dave Justice backstory, which, by the way, Dave Justice was right. I mean, the Indians fans <laughs> were an A+, and the Braves fans were, like, a B-. minus. I mean... He's 100% right about that. Um, but then he hits the dramatic home run off of um, Jim Poole, right, I think. Uh, yeah, who was only in the game because he had stayed in to, to pinch hit, to lay down a bunt, failed, and then they kept him in just to just to face justice, and he gives up the only run of the game. Yeah, and, and the, Glavin tells a story about how he just went in and said, like, get me one run. And then they get him the run, and he's sitting there in the dugout thinking, like, all right, like I better back it up now. They went, they went and got the run. Um, and then, of course, the decision to take him out and um, let Wollers pitch the ninth, which I remember watching and thinking, like, wow, I can't believe Glavin isn't going to finish this, um, especially since Bobby Cox gave Schmoltz so much rope in a similar situation in a clinching game in Minnesota, you know, just a few years before. But, yeah, I mean, there's so much we could talk about. Like, it's an incredible World Series, littered with Hall of Famers and close games and 
fun story. And that's what made it a great book, even though they didn't win it, right? You know, like sometimes sometimes you'll talk about a team and it's like, well, yeah, but they didn't they didn't get it over the finish line. You know, like in Buffalo, the um 2005-2006 Buffalo Sabres played Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals, had a one-goal lead going into the third period, didn't finish it, lost. But it's still a beloved team with an incredible story. You know, you don't always have to win a championship for it to be a team that de- deserves a book. Yeah, I, I think if the Indians win that World Series, I think people re- would regard them as one of the best teams of all time. If you look at the talent... If you look at the lineup, um, and in Cleveland, it, it's awkward because it's like the Cavs team that won the championship is considered the best team of all time because they won the championship because they had the best player. Then you look and it's like, okay, well, who's next? Like the 95 team was, was incredible. They didn't win the World Series, but... Did you just write every... this on The Athletic too? I'm sorry to jump in, but <laughs> yeah, did you kind of write the I, debate? Probably... Yeah, because uh, I read we that. Did, and we, yeah. It was the debate was like never ending too yeah. because a lot of people wanted to put the 95 Indians ahead of the Cavs because like it, it's, it depends what you value. You know, if you value the journey, if you want to get sucked into a season and be invested in every game, then maybe the 95 Indians are your cup of tea. You know, if, if all you care about is the end result and you just want to see that trophy hoisted, well, then there are other options for you. So it, it depends what your criteria are. Um, but the crazy thing about this team is because people were so committed and they were invested in the journey, they come back. People are they're waiting at the airport for them when they land after game six. Two days later in downtown Cleveland, they threw a parade, even though they lost. And I think a lot of Indians fans, I mean, just Cleveland in general just thought, this is the start. And it was. I mean, they were good through 2001. They were in the playoffs six of seven years. Um but I don't know that anybody realized that was the best team they would have in that stretch. And, you know, sometimes you don't realize that until years later. Uh, but that team was, it just ran into a team that had three Hall of Fame starting pitchers. Right. It's, it's tough. And, and who had been knocking on the team. door and knocking on the door and knocking on the door and finally got theirs across. You know what I mean? It's not like. Right. Like, they had had the experience of the seven-game World Series against Minnesota and then a six-game World Series against Toronto and then, you know, the failed se- – the the unbelievable pennant race. In 93, I mean, they they had to go win 103 games and didn't win the division. You know, you're talking about Cleveland winning it weeks ahead. Braves won 103 games in 93 and didn't win till literally the last game of the year. They were waiting around after their game watching the Giants, you know, play Colorado. Um and then I, th- I think as great as that team was, they're burned out. They lose to the Phillies. So it's again, it's a, like it's not just a team of three Hall of Fame pitchers, but it's a team of three Hall of Fame pitchers with like all this playoff and World Series experience too. And um, yeah, yeah, it was it was as formidable of a matchup as you could have had in '95, which was important for baseball too because there was no World Series the previous year. Right. So you needed something good to capture everybody's attention. I think they did that with all the close games. Um, and it was good for the Indians to get that exposure. And I think people realize, okay, this is a team that's going to be around for a while. But again, like, I mean, they, they made it back there in 97, 97 yeah. but that 97 team won 86 games. And they like, they were treading water until August. 
Um, the playoff run was crazy. There were tons of crazy games. They got taken to the distance by the Yankees and then the Marlins. Uh, but that one, I think, more so leaves a sour taste in fans' mouths. They hadn't in '95. They hadn't let anybody down. They hadn't been a disappointment. By '96, they lose in the first round. '97, they lose in the World Series. That sense of urgency increases, and then you don't really care about the the regular season as much. You're thinking, just win a title. Show me in October. In '95, you didn't have that. People wanted to be carried along for the ride, and until the very end, it was a pretty enjoyable one. Yeah, and in '97, I mean, you have the famous Sandy Alomar home run off Rivera, um, which yep. really kickstarted that run. Uh, the book is called Cleveland Rocks. Oh, hold on, let me get it up, get so I can get the because uh, because of uh, Corona, this is a digital experience for me, so I don't have the um, <laughs> the book right in front of me. Cleveland Rock: The Personality Sluggers and Magic of the 1995 Indians. Uh, incredibly fun team to read about, and a really fun season to relive. Um, especially for me because I lived so close to Cleveland and got to go to a game there that year. And then also watching the Braves every day, just because of the way, um, television and baseball worked in, um, 1995. I think this is also an interesting kind of TV. This is the last series that Al Michaels, I think called baseball. Um, I think I have that right. Well, 95 was the first year the Indians used Buffalo for their uh, AAA affiliate. Yeah, it had been Pittsburgh um, here for a while. Um, Orlando Merced was the star um, who played a big part in the Braves and Pirates series that ended with uh, Sid Bream's uh, mm-hmm. famous slide on the Francisco Cabrera hit. But yeah, the Indians were... The the Bisons have been, I think, in my Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Toronto. They had the Mets for a year or two, um, but they're Toronto right now. Um, also, one of those cities you were talking about that could have possibly uh, gotten in on the Indians. They're a big part of the expansion process when Colorado and Florida were eventually picked. Um, the uh, Buffalo is right there. Uh, with those three cities. Um, Zach writes for The Athletic. Uh, you can also find him on Twitter. Let me see. Let me get that right. I'll blow that one. Uh, you want to give it your Twitter? Yeah, it's just my name, Zach Meisel, M-E-I-S-E-L. And The Athletic has done a great job of making something out of nothing during these lean sports times. Uh, Zach, I know you're an Ohio State guy, and I'm a big Saints fan, the the, the Ohio State Saints. I want to thank you for um, <laughs> Mike Thomas and Lattimore, and we will miss Von Bell. Um, uh, but And Eli Apple, I guess, has moved on as well. But, uh, you know, the Ohio State Saints, uh, I've been proud of them the last few years, so I wanted to... The pipeline is strong. Yes, I wanted to thank... I mean, we go back to Will Smith, uh, the great Will Smith, one of the yeah. Great. He's actually I have a a fat head on my wall here of Tracy Porter running into the end zone Super Bowl XL IV pointing at the end zone and next to him is Will Smith. And also Scott Shanley, but rest in peace to the great Will Smith too. Another one. I was a big Indianapolis Colts fan when I was a kid. Love Peyton Manning. That one hurt. Yeah, I bet. Um 
that was a great game as well, though. Maybe someday we can do the ultimate uh, breakdown of uh, Super Bowl XL IV 44. <laughs> Zach, thank you so much for doing this. I had a lot of fun. Um, I hope Cleveland sports um, bounce back, bounces back post-pandemic. Hope the Cavs uh, maybe win the lottery or whatever's going to happen there. Uh, rebuild the Cavs. Um, and hopefully the Indians can get back um, – with Lindor and the good young players that they have and give you a lot to write about. Um, you Is it mainly Indians? Because obviously Ohio State has their own people in Columbus through the athletic, right? So are you mainly focus on Indians and um, and um, Cavs with the, oh, and the Browns, of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm around the, I'm follow the Indians wherever they go. And yeah. A little bit of Browns, a little bit of Cavs, which you're right. It's like, We've all been twiddling our thumbs for right. a few months now, and, and you made everything's going to hit at once. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hopefully Baker, Baker, um, has a better year this year. Him and OBJ can get their thing. I, look, at, I'm 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 in it for Cleveland. You know, like I said, I feel a brothership. Uh, you know, down here in the Rust Belt of, in Buffalo. Um, but uh, thank you so much for doing this. Anything else you wanted to do, plug wise? No, that's it. You have me daydreaming about a Browns Bills playoff game. I think that's <laughs> two of the two of the most uh, fanatic fan bases. That would be a lot of fun. They had a famous one in 1989. Uh, Ronnie Harmon. Yeah, yeah. Ronnie Harmon dropped the ball. I remember where I was sitting on the couch in my grandma's house, and my dad standing up and saying, "Fucking Ronnie Harmon!" And then I think the next play, Jim Kelly got picked off, and I think he stood up and said, "Fucking Jim Kelly," you know. So. Uh, famous uh, game in 89 uh, for sure. So, yeah, that would be, be interesting to see another one for sure between those two teams. Thank you so much. Hope the last time the Browns were relevant. <laughs> well, they did have that. The new Browns had a playoff uh, game against Pittsburgh, didn't they? What year was that? They did. And, oh, yeah. It was January of 03. Is that Kelly Holcomb? Just, yeah, wild game. I think he threw for like 400 yards. Yeah. Dennis Northcutt dropped a pass at the end or couldn't get out of bounds, something like that, and they lost. Thirty-six, yeah. thirty-three. Yeah, crazy game. I remember that game. But all right, I said bye to you. I think six times. I keep rambling. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize about that. Uh, thank you for doing this. Thank you for letting me uh, help you uh, promote the book a little bit on Twitter and with the book club and uh, all the time you gave me today. I really appreciate it. You got it. Thanks for having me. Could've used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hauling her down She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high Way up firm and high Alright, I want to thank Zach for being on the podcast today Don't forget to check out his book, Cleveland Rocked uh, the personality sluggers and magic of the 1995 Indians. I uh, enjoyed talking uh, to Zach today. Thanks to him for that. Uh, also, in a minute, we're going to take a break and we're going to talk to Pat Lepard. And Pat is the author of The Eighth Wonder of the World, uh, the true story of Andre the Giant. He authored this book with Bertrand Hebert. 
uh, and we'll talk to Pat all about it, get the story uh, of Andre the Giant uh, and talk uh, to Pat. I did it the other day. It was really fun, and I look forward to hearing that. Uh, so two bucks, two books we've been featuring on the book club down, and there's still one left that we've been working on, and it's called Yogi, uh, A Life Behind the Mask. It's by John Pessa. Uh, John has been uh, the author of a book featured in the book club before. Uh, that book was called The Game. And uh, now that I'm done with Pat and Zach's book, uh, I can focus on reading this and having uh, John on. If you listen to this before June 18th, uh, John is going to be, uh, let's see, 7 o'clock. He's going to be speaking about his new book, Yogi. Uh, personalized copies are available. It's a great Father's Day gift. There's a link. I I retweeted this. So if you go to my Twitter, at sports underscore casters, uh, you can find out about uh, what John's going to be doing, what this is. I imagine it's some kind of virtual uh, book thing. Um, let's see. Here's more information here. Uh, join the book review for an evening. I, this is on Crowdcast. So uh, you can find out about it. Like I said, I, I linked to it. Uh, it looks like it's 30 bucks. if you hear this before uh, June 18th. All right. Uh, quickly, one last uh, thing in the book club here. We have a new book. Uh, so we finished two. Uh, we got John's. And next up is something I'm really excited about. Um, it's by an author named Corbin Reef, uh, who is a music writer. And the book is called, it's got kind of a crazy title here, Total Fucking Godhead, the biography of Chris Cornell. Uh, comes out in July, uh, and I can't wait to read it and talk to Corbin about it. Um, a couple of years ago, around this time of year, uh, we did a book about Allison Chains, The Untold Story. Uh, by a guy named David DeSola, something like that. And I loved it. And, of course, earlier in the year, uh, we did the Soundgarden book that Greg Prado put out. And uh, we've also done a music book by Steve Hyden and, you know, a bunch of different stuff. I love reading music books to kind of mix it up. And I love Chris Cornell, so I'm excited about this one. Uh, Total Fucking Godhead, the biography of Chris Cornell by Corbin Reef. And... uh it's 2.48 a.m. here in Buffalo right now, which I hope goes to explain why I talk like a mushmouth and cannot say the proper words. I apologize. All right. With that in mind, let's take a break. Uh, Pat Lepard is on. Let's talk to him about Andre the Giant. Next guest today, he's making his first appearance on the Sportscasters. He's the author of a great new book about Andre the Giant. You may have remembered him from the recent episode of The Dark Side of the Ring about Dino Bravo. A warm Sportscasters welcome to Pat LaPrade. Hey, Pat, how you doing today? Very good. Very good yourself. Very good. Thank you so much for doing this. I loved, loved the book. Um, really enjoyed. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. It. 
it was one of those things where I loved the documentary that HBO had done. And mm-hmm. um, going into the book, I was wondering, you know, what I what, I was just in my head wondering, like, what will it add? Will it add anything? You know, um, and then uh, yesterday I was uh, getting ready for this and I was just randomly came across someone wearing a T-shirt that said the book was better. Um, and I thought <laughs> I thought of you and thought of this and was looking forward to talking to you today. Uh, let's back up a little bit. Um and let's do like three or four minutes on Dino Bravo before we get into Andre and the book, because I feel like once we get into that, that'll be a force of nature and then the time will be gone. Uh, but since you're on and I have you and I was so fascinated by um, the uh, the Dark Side of the Ring episode that you were such a big part of this season, I wanted to spend at least a couple minutes on it. Um, sure. Dino's a fascinating guy to me because for a long time his his murder was um a legend in a way you know like a a story that you hear but you don't really know much about you know like to me it was always the wrestler Dino Bravo who I grew up watching uh he retired and was in Canada in the mob and was watching hockey night in Canada and they shot him a hundred times you know and then that that that's what I knew uh, whether it was true or not, that's what I kind of heard and and thought, and the the documentary really gave it context. Let me ask you this: Were you surprised when the producers came to you and said we're doing an episode on Dino Bravo? Did that surprise you at all? Um, not really, because well, well, I'm saying not really. You need to understand that when I was first approached for the documentary. It was two years ago, so 2018. Sure. Uh, it wasn't even it wasn't even titled uh, "Dark Side of the Ring" uh, at the time. You know, there was not that that title came uh, came came after we shot uh, the episode uh, here. And and uh, the Bravo episode was supposed to be part of the first season. The first season was supposed to get ten shows. And uh, and you know, as we you know, as Kim was working on it, I was supposed to. Um, uh, to do some more research for photos and stuff, they um, they kind of put the episode on hold because now Vice only wanted six episodes for the first season, so the Bravo episode was moved to the second season if the ratings were good enough. Sure. So everything was put on hold for uh, the longest time, and I wasn't really uh, I wasn't much part of it once. Uh, you know, once they got the green light to uh, to finish the episode, because mostly my interview was done, and you know, I had put the team in touch with everybody they needed to. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I want to say, you know, aside from one interview, everything else was was already done. So there wasn't, you know, there. I, I guess there was some editing to be done, of course, but that wasn't my uh, my my, uh, my 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 work. So. Um, so yeah, so, so I mean, it's not that I was surprised or not. It it was more than I wanted to make sure that the intentions that that these guys had, uh, you know, because it's a it's a touchy subject, and even for the family, it's a you know it's a touchy uh, subject. And 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 I know that uh, Evan Asni, one of the uh, co-creators, um, told that story before, so I don't mind telling it, but. Um, when uh, when the day that we were supposed to interview Claudia, 
who to me is the star of the show, uh, Dino's daughter. Yeah, she was great. Um, she, 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 uh, she, she bailed on it. She, she didn't want to do it no more. She called me and she's like, Pat, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't feel it. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't know these guys and I, I trust you, but I don't know them. And because uh, for the longest time, the family never gave interviews. Uh, I was the, I was the first one in uh, in uh, March of 2018 to uh, write something from an interview that uh, Dino's widow gave me, Diane. And that his daughter Claudia gave me as well. I knew Claudia for a few years, uh, but never met Diane before. And I was the only one that she gave an interview to in 25 years because I wanted to write something about the 25th anniversary of Dino's passing. So, uh, I mean, you know, they were not really used to. It's not like Barbara Goodish, you know, uh, Brody's uh, Brody's wife, who, who gave plenty of interviews, who's been at conventions and talking to the fans and everything. That was not the case for Bravo's family. So, so uh, Claudia called me up and she was like, "Empath, you know, I'm really sorry, but you know, I won't do it." And so, so, so we were doing another interview that day. So I went straight to Evan and told and, and Jason and told them that. And and, and to their credit, um, they uh, Evan right right you know right at that moment didn't try to convinced Claudia didn't try anything else. He said, you know what? Call her up and tell her that um, to choose a restaurant, to come with her with her husband, and we're going to have a nice dinner tonight and just get to know each other. And and come, you know, come, and, and he, you know uh, he invited me, of course, because I was the link between, between Claudia and them, right? So, right. Um, so, and Claudia said, okay, yeah, sure, no problem. And, and, you know, just to, that was the best thing to do because by the end of the dinner, Claudia was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm down with it. Everything is fine now. You know, she just, she just needed to be reassured. And I couldn't do that because she knew that I wasn't the one calling the shots. I wasn't the one making the last decisions cut on how the documentary would be. And she just wanted to make sure that her father would be, uh, would be well well uh, portrayed in the documentary, and you know, she, by the end of the dinner, she 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 was in. So 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 uh, I wasn't surprised when uh, I heard uh, Martha Hart, you know, tell her story with Evan and Jason, and pretty much said the same thing. You know that she, you know she met with them and. You know, she didn't know what to think before, and you know, after talking to them, she was was yeah, yeah, let's do this. You know, yeah, these two guys have so much passion about pro wrestling, and they they, they it's dark side of the ring, so it's never stories that are easy to talk about, especially for the person, the people, you know, uh, uh, like Marta Hart or like Claudia Bresciano. Uh, but, uh, you know, they are so trustworthy after you met them for a few hours that, you know, it's, it's so easy to work with them and, and props to them to, 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 to have done it that way. Yeah. I guess I only asked like if you were surprised because when the show came out, I was like, oh, I bet there's a screw job episode, you know, or, or whatever, another big hit, you know, part of the history of Montreal wrestling, but. Um, 
and obviously going from 10 to 6, they had to make some tough decisions. And maybe some of the stories they told I thought were a little... But then when I started hearing some of the things that were going to happen in the second season, even though they still had Benoit and uh, Road Warriors and some things like that, I was excited that they got to a point where they're giving Dino the proper respect and telling a story. Uh, let me ask you this. You got it, It's cut for TV and they have 42 or 43 minutes or whatever. They can't tell everything. Is there anything when you watched it as a trained eye that you thought, man, they should have told this or they should have said this? Is there anything else you can tell us about Dino's story that was maybe left on the cutting room floor because of time? Well, well, well of course. The, the, docu- the documentary was made... Uh, I mean, it was the assassination of, you know, Bravo. So, you know, out of uh, 45 minutes, uh, 15 minutes was spent on his career and his life, and 45, uh, 30 minutes was spent on, on the assassination. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot more to be said about Dino's career, right? But that wasn't a documentary on Dino's career. It was mostly focused on the assassination. So, I mean, as far as this goes, I mean, of course, they, they would have, you know, uh, uh, there's much more to say about Dino's career, but that wasn't the uh, the focus of the documentary. So, you know, once you get that, it's, I mean, I thought the episode was very well done, uh, very well presented. Everyone liked it here. Uh, the family liked it, uh, watched it over and over and over. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm the one doing the interview with Claudia. And, you know, I, I still remember that I had a question I wanted to keep for, la- for, 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 you know, there was a question I wanted to keep for the last question I was going to ask her because I knew in what kind of mood she would actually uh, put herself. And, and you know, I, I really, really enjoyed the, the way they edited it and the way, you know, they kept it for the very end of the, uh, of the documentary. You know, when I asked her, you know, if she uh, couldn't meet her father now, you know, what, you know, what she would like to tell him, you know. And I remember asking her that uh, when I interviewed her for my article, and I knew in what kind of emotion she was going to answer, so I knew for a documentary would be, it would be very good. And, 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 uh, and still, I got choked up watching it, knowing the answer in advance, you know. Right. So I just thought that Claudia was great there. And no, I mean... Uh, her story about the car, really I thought... I'm sorry. Her story about the the car I thought was amazing. Just uh, you know, being, oh, yeah. yeah, being in the car with her dad and remembering how it was red. It, it, she really gave me like I could really f- f- see it through a child's eyes. You know, like I could remember similar stories about my dad at that age or something. You know, she really did a great job. I thought telling that story. I thought that, I'm glad they kept that. I just thought that was great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. Um. All right. God bless Dino Bravo. Rest in peace. I, I wanted to get at least a minute or two in there on him. Uh, but the eighth wonder of the world, the true story of Andre the Giant, you wrote this with your with your friend and partner, Bertrand Hebert. Um I read the book. I love the book. Uh, let's get some timelines. Let's get some timeline stuff out uh, just so I understand. Uh, the documentary on HBO and your involvement there, was. did that predate this book? Your, I know, obviously, yeah. the release. but And, and what... What role, if any, did being a part of that have in writing the book? Um, yeah, we, we we shot the documentary. Uh, I mean, I was I was contacted. I want to say at the end of 2016, perhaps beginning of 2017. 
uh, about the documentary. Uh, and then uh, they brought me in France with them to interview the family in May of 2017 because, uh, you know, no one else spoke French in their team. So they wanted me to come back interviews and help them, you know, doing some research and talking to people over there. So uh, we went there and, uh, you know, I did, you know, some other stuff, you know, for, uh, you know, the Montreal territory and, you know, put them in touch with someone like Gino Brito was interviewed for the documentary and, 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 and all that. So uh, at the end of the day, uh, I was a field producer for the documentary uh, and it's a, product, a documentary I'm really, really proud of. It's amazing, uh, yeah. But at the same time, there, there, there's so much you can say in a 86 minute documentary you know so so once we were done filming it uh, or at least my part in france and everything uh, i spoke to bertrand and i was like hey you know what i think there's something here you know it's a project we already had thought of uh but we didn't find you know we didn't feel it was the right timing uh when we had that idea maybe a year or two before uh, but now with the documentary coming uh, on its way, we're like, okay, you know, that's the right timing to write a book on Andre because not that he was not relevant no more, but he was brought back to the mainstream because of the documentary. Sure. And um, and 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 my role in it uh, allowed me to get in, you know, add contacts with people that perhaps I would have not done in contact before, you know? Uh, I mean, I had met with the two brothers. Uh, I had spoken with uh, Jackie McCauley, who, who uh, was taking care of the ranch for Andre with her late husband for many, many years. Uh, so those contacts uh, were, um, were through the documentary. But I flew back to France to re-interview the, the brothers because, you know, again... The questions we asked with the the, the 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 documentary crew were questions that the uh, um, that the producer was knew that he would use in the documentary. So, but there's a bunch more of questions that I would have asked then that we don't have the time to right. because we knew it wouldn't it wouldn't be part of the documentary at the end of the day. Uh, so, so I wanted to sit again with those people and and talk even more about about Andre. Uh, so that's what I did, uh, and uh, and yeah. So I mean, that's uh, that's really when uh, when 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 I came back from France uh, in in summer of 2017. That's really when uh, we started, you know, uh, pitching the idea to ECW Press, and uh, by the end of the year, we had we had to deal with them. One thing I loved about I read a lot of books like this, and sometimes the worst, the hardest part of the book is getting through the part about the the subject before they're famous. You know, like getting into the meat of it. Yeah. With Andre, it's different because with Andre, it felt so different because I'm so interested in that part of his life. You know, you hear. We'll talk more about this in a second, but often the stories of Andre, you know, become so larger than life. That you're not really sure, you know, like, for example, the story about him getting picked up um, in his village and, and driven to school by the other famous person from the village. And um, so I was so interested in, like, what was it really like, you know, and you spent 
a really good amount of time in the beginning of the book talking about his time in France and growing up and what his childhood was like. And it's probably easy when you're writing a book about Andre the Giant to find people in the wrestling business to talk about the wrestling. It's probably a much different thing to, like you said, get to France and talk to the brothers and people who knew him before he was, you know, Andre the Giant. Um, what about that that era and that time and, and how you retrace the steps of his childhood and, and was it really just the family was it the village in general was it what was it like kind of piecing together the pre-andre the giant story you know when he was just the the kid in france yeah it was mostly the the family because um, i mean they were the only one who could actually give us details about you know what andre was like uh, growing up, I, I had I had already you know a bunch of information from the interviews we did for the documentary. But you know when I, I, I met with them again, I wanted to go more into details, more in, you know more in depth. Uh, his nephew also, the, he, he, Andre has one uh, one nephew who actually lives here in Montreal, so we already knew who he was. So we met with him as well. And the thing was that he is the only member of the family who actually did research and contact his extended family in Serbia. So so uh, everything that you read in the book about uh, the origins of, uh, of Andre uh, in Serbia and Bulgaria, that comes from Boris, who is Andre's nephew. Uh, so that was instrumental to the story because it adds so much more to... Uh, to to the origins of uh, of Andre and you know why he was a French guy called Rusimov you know so 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 yeah I mean uh, family was very important uh, for that part and and I, I do feel because every time I read a biography uh, you know I I just hate it when there's like five chapters on on the person's childhood and, right. yeah. and and you know as a teenager and i was like yeah you know what i'm can, saying can we just get yeah. into it you know so <laughs> so we, we me and bertrand did two biographies together and and the boat of it uh to us we wanted to keep that part really entertaining as well so in the mad dog vachon biography that we did i mean mad dog vachon's childhood was something else you know his favorite sport growing up was to beat up uh, endless kids. So that's something you don't see every day. So there was a story, there was a, we kept it short, but at the same time, there was something very interesting about it. And with Andre, well, the tales and, and, and the myths start, you know, with, with, with him as a, as a child. So, so, so it was important for us to start uh, debunking all of those myths uh, at an early age. Uh, so, so, so yeah, the giant was, was different because even his childhood is fascinating, but that, you know, that's when he started being, uh, abnormally tall. And that's when, you know, the, some stories started, you know, and, 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 and I mean, so many stories from, from that guy you were talking about, Samuel Beckett, who's a, a famous writer, Nobel prize winner. Right. Uh, and, uh, the, the legend always said that he was, uh, Andre couldn't fit in the school bus no more because he was getting too tall. So Samuel Beckett was a friend of the family, uh, was lifting Andre back and forth for school in his pickup truck. Well, 
the reality behind it is that there were never a school bus to begin with <laughs> right. when Andre was going to school, you know? Yeah. So that's crazy when you think of it, you know? But other other stories about, you know, Andre playing sports uh, and everything. So, so the, the, there's something very interesting about how Andre grew up literally, uh, but, you know, as a child, as a teenager. So we, we tried to keep it, kept it short. Uh, but there were some fascinating things about him there too, you know. Yeah, oh, I loved it. Um, loved that part of it. Let me ask you this: You talked about the myths, and I remember uh, when the documentary came out, the director was saying, you know, he tried to make sure anything in the film was at least firsthand. You know, he tried to include stories of when someone was saying Andre and I, you know, as opposed to oh, I heard about Andre and this guy or something like that. Um, you talked already about debunking the myths or whatever, but I'm curious when you're doing this, was there a myth that you were heartbroken ended up not being true? Was there a story you were so excited? Ah, that is true or enough of it is true. Or what about for you and debunking the myths and what it's like to present the stories and, and find out? Cause you do, I mean, it's a big part of the book is the, is, Things like the story is this. Now let me tell you what happened. Um, what do you think? Well, it was important for us. It was important for us to to. I mean, there were other other. There was another book written on Andre by WZUE like twelve years ago. Yeah, uh, but Not you know, good. from from it's from from now exactly. You <laughs> yeah. know, and, and from his birth, from his birth to the time he gets to WWF, there's like thirty pages or so. We had 11 chapters with that same time period. So for us, it was really important to get not only the real story, but the, the complete story. But for the first time, you know, I mean, Bugs Brown did a, a graphic novel, which was fantastic. But still, it wasn't, everything in there wasn't all true. And it wasn't, it wasn't the most complete story of Andre. The HBO documentary, because of, of time, um, country, you know, with, with 86 minutes, there's so much you can, it was great. I'm so proud of it, but there's so much you can say in 86 minutes. So, so, so for us, it was important to be the most comprehensive project ever done on Andre. So in order to do that, well, we needed to, uh, we needed to talk about Andre in every aspect of his life, in every aspect of his career, talk about Andre in Japan, in England, in Africa, in Europe. Um, I mean, when someone like Stan Anson, who knew Andre pretty well and who wrote the foreword of the book, told me that he learned things about Andre, to me that says it all, you know. And and um, and 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 one of our missions, one of our missions was to debunk all of those stories and make sure that not only we would debunk them, but that we would also tell why or you know how this. This this myth came to be told. Uh, what was the myth, and what is the truth behind it? And and we realized that you know the truth was more than often interesting enough to be told. You know, uh, but but it just adds to 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 the you know the legend of Andre and and uh, and there's so many of them. You know, there, there's not. I mean, honestly, I don't think there's one myth that we haven't really talked about in the book and that we haven't come with some kind of a, 
of a of a of a of an answer, uh, you know, in lack of, of a better word. Uh, I mean, even even the hundred beers, you know, that that story that Andre right. in one step hundred beers, one hundred and eighteen beers or one hundred and fifteen beers. I mean, we'll never know the real real story behind it, but we can. I mean, Bertrand and I, you know, have interviewed wrestlers for so many years that we know that, uh, you know, when, when um, you know, that kind of story that uh, it probably happened once, maybe twice, but everyone in business was there that day, you know? Uh, and it's funny because someone will tell you that, oh, yeah, yeah, he drank 115 beers. That story was in Atlanta. Somebody else will say, oh, no, no, that story was in Miami or that story was in Orlando. And there's no way that Andre did that 20 times, you know. But at the same time, he was, you know, he was drinking a lot and, and he could drink a lot. But, you know, it's like eating, you know. He, he, he could eat 10 T-bone steaks if he wanted to. Was he doing it all the time? No. Was he doing it sometime? Of course. And why was he doing it? Just to entertain the crowd. Just right. to entertain the people he was with, because he was able to. But Jackie McCauley told me that you know when he was at the ranch for a, a few days, that you know it wasn't it wasn't surprising to see Andre eat yogurt in the afternoon. And and I do not imagine Andre eating yogurt because I've been told for years and years that the that the guy can you know empty a buffet and and and. Uh, you know, uh, all you can eat buffet, and that you know, you can eat uh, twelve uh, rib steak uh, in, in in one you know in one sitting. So I'm like, what? He was eating yogurt? What are you what are you saying? You know, so 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 uh, so yeah. I mean, Andre had different habits when he was on the road than when he was uh, you know at the ranch, and it, to me, it's all part of, of the legend of Andre. Another thing, the sportscasters are here with uh, Pat Lepard, who did the book The Eighth Wonder of the World, the true story of Andre the Giant with Bertrand Hebert. It's an incredible book. We've been talking about it on the book club here. A uh, couple more minutes, I'll let you go. I, another thing you do great in this book is talking about money. Wrestling, Wrestlers and money sometimes can be just difficult to, to hear. They, they don't talk about it that much, you know, payouts, things like that can be so quiet. You don't want to know how often I went to the website where you put in what the money was at the time and what it's worth now, you know, because you'd be like, hey, work seven matches for Vince and made 2000 and whatever. I'm like, oh, I wonder how much that was today. Uh, but you did a great job, I thought, painting a picture of what a great earner he was and how much money he made. And I, re I really enjoyed that part of it. Let me ask you one or two more things. What about Vince McMahon and his relationship with Andre? You talk a lot about it in the book. Um, how often have you talked to Vince, if at all, about Andre? And um, what about his role in the book and Andre's life? He has no role in the book. It, it wasn't a. It wasn't a WWE book. Right. No, I so know that. Yeah, for sure. We we haven't we haven't talked to Vince at all. Yeah, the the I mean the quotes we have the quotes we have from him are from the documentary. Okay, uh, uh, but and and you know I had because of my role in the documentary, I had the knowledge of you know some of the stuff, uh, but you know that's 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 about it. You know, okay. um, but what he says in the documentary was strong enough. 
that you know we could we could you know uh, use it and put it more into context right uh in the book because we had more time to to do so that's you know there's a reason why the book is 450 pages or so you know yeah so so uh and 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 but i mean vince the, the, the real the, the real relation between andre and vince was with vince senior i mean vince senior was like a dad was like a father figure to 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 andre and uh um, he was a very, very close friend with Vince Senior. I mean, he knew Junior forever, of course, and you know he he was very close with you know especially Stephanie and 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 all that. Uh, but Vince Junior was also the promoter who decided to go national. And you know, one one of the things that Andre liked the most in the business was to travel from territory to territory. And you know, see his friends in different territories, because uh, that's what Vince Senior was doing, right? He was booking Andre all over the world, uh, right. a week, a two-week tour, uh, and he was, you know, taking a percentage out of Andre. So, uh, you know, he didn't need to have Andre in his home territory all the time, but he was still making money of him, uh, and um, also the fact that. He, he was um, that you know if he would have used Andre too often in his own territory, it, it would have been bad. You know, it would have been uh, it would have been uh, he, Andre was an attraction. attraction if you bring yeah. an attraction mm-hmm. every every day or every week, it's not an attraction anymore. You know, it, it, it's just a, a common wrestler. So 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 he had to protect Andre in his own territory. So that was the perfect thing for him to send him all over the world. When Vince decided to go national and decided that his talent was going to be more exclusive to him, well, that changed all that for Andre. He was still traveling a lot, but always with the same group of people. So he wasn't able to see his friends uh, in other uh, promotions because if they were in with WWF, well, you know, he didn't share the same locker rooms no more. So that, that, that Andre didn't like. That was the, probably the first thing Andre didn't like. Then Vince was also the promoter who kind of had to tell Andre that, man, you need to retire. You know, I cannot use you anymore. And that didn't sit well with Andre, you know, uh, either, you know, because Andre didn't want to stop wrestling. Not because he needed the money, uh, but only because Andre's was like, Andre was, the locker room, the wrestling locker room was like a sanctuary for Andre. You know, it was a place, it was a safe place for him, some a place where he, he felt uh, he felt good, he, he, he wasn't pointed at, uh, he, he was just, you know, just the guy in one the card of the game. boys. Yeah, just a guy in the card yeah, game. Yeah, he, right? he was yeah. just one of the boys, a wrestler among others. Uh, so he was playing cards with friends. So so he didn't want to stop that. And that's why he kept wrestling until almost the very end. He was still wrestling in December of 92 in Japan, and he died in January of 93. So, uh, and, and Vince was, and I'm not saying Vince was wrong, quite the contrary. You know, Andre should have retired. But Vince was the bad guy in the story, you know, in the eyes of Andre, because he was the one who, who had to stop using Andre, you know? So, I mean, I mean, there were a few things that 
you know, and I'm not blaming Vince at all. He made business decisions and, sure. and, and, and the, the right ones, you know, I mean, he took WWF to, uh, to, to another stratosphere and, and, um, and he, he made, and Andre made a lot of money, you know, with Vince Jr. Uh, but at the same time, there were a few things. So they never had the same relation that Andre had with the father. And, and I think that when, you know, when, when you see Vince Jr. in the documentary at the very end, like, you know, getting wet eyes, I mean, th- th- these, these were real, you know, th- th- that was real, you know, it, it wasn't Vince playing a character, you know, it, it, I mean, probably that the relation didn't finish very well and that, you know, Vince, I don't know if he regrets it, but, most probably didn't want it to end that way either, but he had to move on, and Andre wasn't willing to understand that, and and it probably hurt Vince to a degree. So so I mean that that's the relation he had with Vince. Uh, with the father, well, that was completely different. You know, I mean the father was the one who who made Andre to a degree. You know, I mean he was made in Montreal, but he he he, he brought Andre to another level. And, uh, and yes, that's the difference between his relation with the two, uh, the two McMahons. The book is called The Eighth Wonder of the World, The True Story of Andre the Giant by Hebert and Lebrad. Pat, I got to tell you, all the French I know is from Rush lyrics. And, you know, there's only a few. They have a song on permanent waves called Entrez Nous. I don't even know if I'm saying those words right. And then in the song Circumstances on Hemispheres, there's some crazy French in there. I had to put it in Google Translate a few times to try to figure out what the hell <laughs> what the hell Neil was saying. But uh, the book is an incredible look at the career of and life of Andre the Giant. And like I said, I was on the Google uh, changing. There's so many great things about the money and and what a great earner he was. And there's incredible pictures in the book and debunking the stories and you know talking about how much Andre hated uh, Big John Stud and how he would got pissed off at him stepping over the top rope and Andre would step on his hair and just great stuff about there. I mean, I could talk to Pat about this book all day long. Uh, you can follow Pat on Twitter. He's at uh, Pat L A P R A D E there um, for more information on the book. And uh, it's available, you know, where you buy books, Pat, anything else you want to plug or anything like that? Uh, no, you pretty much, uh, you pretty much said it. Anything, uh, everything I was about to say, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pat Laprade. Um, the book is available through Amazon. Sometimes because of the pandemic, uh, the stock can be low, right. uh, but in the U.S. you can get it also on uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, Barnes and Noble, yeah. Barnes and Noble online. Uh, you can find it also uh, on ECW Press's website, where you can actually get the ebook for free if you buy the physical book. Uh, so while you know it's in the mail, you can start reading it. And if you want to take a look at the other books I've written, uh, Mad Dog's Mitchell and Through Jobs, the uh, history of the Montreal wrestling territory, Mad Dog, the Maurice Vachon story, as well as Sisterhood of the Squared Circle, uh, the history of women's wrestling. And uh, the biography that Bertrand wrote on um, uh, Pat Patterson called "Accepted." So yeah, great. Uh, if you want to check those that. out, great book. Uh, yeah, everything is on everything is on Amazon. So uh, feel free to check those out. That uh, that Barnes and Noble hack was clutch. I I helped a, a few listeners um, who had Amazon orders 
you know, that we're going to, it said it was going to take like, you know, 30 years to get the book, cancel those and get it on. <laughs> but um, it's better. It's better now. Yeah. It's, it's better now, Yeah. Though. It's definitely, uh, we, we yeah. flattened the curve of uh book uh, shipping apparently. Um, yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much uh, for doing this. Very, very last thing. If, if you could have asked any person one more question about Andre for the book, is there any one person that you would have liked to have asked one question? Oh, well, I would have liked to have Jen Sr. On, on, on record, right? I would right. have liked to sit down with Jen Sr. But it, as far as question goes, uh, if I only had one question, it would be uh, directed to Andre himself. And I would have liked to ask him, why or, or what did you understand of the, the, the surgery that you never taken for acromegaly, the disease he had? I mean, because, you know, that shortened his life, and he knew he had this, and he always, you know, he never he never went for the surgery, and, and he gave reasons, but honestly, his reasons never satisfied me, so I would have liked to sit down and talk about that whole thing with him, what he knew about the disease, what he knew about the surgery, how it was explained to him. To me, all that, you know, is, is still... Uh, it's still something that, uh, or probably the only thing that I would have liked to uh, uh, to ask Andre if I if I had the chance. So, uh, but you know, we still come up with answers for that, and 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 we pretty much have answers for for everything you ever wanted to know about uh, about Andre. So, uh, hoping that uh, your listeners will uh, find something they like in it. Yeah, and, and and you talk about it in the book, but just for the record on the show. You'll say it 100% bullshit that there was ever a question that Andre was going to do business at WrestleMania 3, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, it was, it was Andre's playing, you know, in his mind. Right. But, but, but again, the documentary team decided to uh, take a certain narrative and, and, and to go with that direction of believing what Ogan was telling them. Which is crazy, and, yeah. And, <laughs> and like, 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 with, like, with, like with Dr. Yet. Who who who, uh, who took charge of Andre when he had that uh, ankle injury in 1981? They decided to, to go with his story of him saying that you know he he, he was the first one to tell uh, to tell Andre that he had acromegaly. We 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 don't share that that same uh, uh, that same way of thinking. We 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 are 100 percent sure that he knew from Japan in January of 1970. Uh, but you know they went with this, and it's a you know it's it's small things at the end of the day, but it's still editorial, uh, uh, you know that that was their editorial choice of, of going with with those, uh, and you know maybe we had more time to elaborate on it, and and you know we do believe we come up with what is the the real truth about it. Uh, I'm not knocking at all the documentary because you know no, it's great. It. Yeah, it's really, great. really proud, and it's probably the best documentary ever done on Andre. Uh, not probably it is, uh, but you know, in the book, we just have more time to 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 uh, to do research, to 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 express our thoughts, uh, and and you know, the crew with the documentary documentary didn't have the same the same chance. So you know, it's just you know, small things, but uh, I mean. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the organ thing was was just uh, Andre loved to do that. He loved playing with your head and and with your mind and stuff like that. So yeah, not surprising there. That's why he was the boss. 
All right, Pats in Montreal. It's like seventy degrees and beautiful, and I got to cut myself off because I could do this all all day. I'm sure he wants to get out in the beautiful city and you know whatever. Uh, Pat, thank you so much. Uh, the eighth wonder of the world, the true story of Andre the Giant, at p a t l a p r a d e on Twitter. And uh, well, thank you, uh, thank you to you, and uh, hoping to talk to you soon. Bye bye. <laughs> Thanks uh, to Pat LaProd for being on the podcast today. Also, Zach Meisel. Don't forget you can find this episode and every episode of the Sportscasters uh, on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com uh, slash sports dash casters. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. Uh, there it's at sports underscore casters. Email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. And uh, if you feel like it, you want to go a five-star review, that'd be great. We're on Stitcher, Apple soundcloud spotify wherever you find podcasts don't forget my buddy at greetings from allentown peter winson he's at gf allentown pod on twitter uh, and i know he has an episode that features the last match of outback jack uh, from new haven connecticut coming up this week uh, props to my boy adrian dater follow him at a dater on twitter uh, also i want to be on the place to be nation podcast I'm going to be on their main show in July. I'll let you know more about that when it comes closer. Uh, and real quickly, I want to give a shout out to a friend of the podcast, uh, my friend Calvin uh, Crowell. He's going through a really rough time uh, right now. Uh, I just want to let him know if he's listening that I'm thinking about him uh, and I care for him. And I think he did the right thing. And uh, something good's going to come his way, even though uh, right now it seems shitty. All right, one last thing for me today, because uh, it's 3 o'clock in the morning here in Buffalo, and I want to get this up in case people want to listen to it on the way to their jobs that are essential tomorrow. Uh, I've been a father for four years now. My daughter Paula turned four uh, today. We celebrated her fourth birthday over the weekend, had a great party, and um, you know today's her actual birthday, and we spent the day together. Uh, you know, she got Chinese food that she loves for lunch and she had her cake again tonight and we had, uh, she had a hot dog and the rolls she loves from Texas Roadhouse for dinner and I bought her a Pearl Jam shirt and she got all kinds of great gifts and she had a great birthday, a happy birthday to my baby. But I want to talk about being a dad a little bit because I'm four years into it uh, and I like to think I'm learning and that I'm a better dad today than I was when she was born. And hopefully I'll be a better dad than I, when she turns eight than I am now. Uh, hopefully I can keep getting better at it and can raise her into being the kind of woman I hoped she would be when I named her Paula after my grandmother, who, as I've said before on the show, was brave and loving and cared about her family and was strong and independent and... That's what I want my daughter to be, as we all do. I'm not unique there. Um, and I try hard uh, to be a good father. And I make myself vulnerable. 
I get down on the carpet with her. I play what she wants to play. I watch what she wants to watch. And also, I show her what I like. And sometimes it's a huge hit like the Karate Kid or the A-Team. Sometimes it's not. That's okay. But like Adam Sandler says in Big Daddy, I just try to show her some cool shit along the way. I think that's a big part of it. You know what I've learned so far? You know, I've learned that... I've learned the love that your parents tell you about that you can't understand until you have your own child. You know, the way that you fear for this person in a good way. You know, the way that you care for them. The way that they're always on your thoughts. You know, there's been a few nights that Paul is asleep in her bed in my house. And I know she's safe, but I open the door and I look in there to make sure she's there. I don't know if it makes any sense, but, you know. You know, I've learned a lot about girls because I didn't know anything about them. Especially one, two, three, four-year-old girls. I learned how to do a ponytail, you know. I learned how to dress a girl. How to bathe a girl. You know. I try to understand her tantrums. I try to understand her fears. I try to understand what she finds funny because sometimes I don't get it. I appreciate more than anything how much she cares for me. Because the nice thing about having a kid that nobody told me Was how much she was going to overrate me. Because to her. I am great. And if I'm being honest. I'm not great to that many people. I can be cranky. I'm not that warm sometimes. I can wear out my welcome, I think. But to her, I'm perfect. She looks at me like a hero. When she gets hurt, she wants me. Because she thinks that no matter what's wrong, I can make it better. And with that in mind, I try to earn that. And when she's hurt, I try to make it better if I can. The other stuff that they do tell you is all true, right? That the time flies. It feels like yesterday that I came home, probably around this time, the night she was born, to change my clothes and get a little sleep and go back the next day. To be with her. And just like that. You know you blink. And four years go by. And I'm sure I'll blink again. And she'll be graduating high school. Or whatever. So that that's true. And they tell you that. Right. That it goes so fast. And I spent some time reflecting tonight. And recently about. 
you know, what can I do better? You know, I have to be more patient. I know that because I'm not patient anyway. Uh, so I'm trying to learn to be more patient with her. I'm trying to be more flexible, you know, just like more things uh, because she likes them. And, you know, I know that at some point her focuses are going to narrow. Right now she likes so many things. But my guess is at some point her focus will narrow and whatever it narrows to, I'm going to be want to be a part of that because I want to be by her. And I want her to want me to be around. And I feel like that's what I want to work on the most is making sure that she always wants me to be around. You know, because... There have been people in my life that have not wanted to be around. And if I look in the mirror, sometimes that's been my fault. You know, but I can't let that happen here. So I'm always trying to make sure that what I'm doing is going to perpetuate her feelings and make sure that she wants me around. Because I know I want to be around her. And I work hard on my health, which hasn't been great lately. And I've been letting outside stresses and my mental health affect my physical health. And that's bad. Uh, But I'm trying and I've been working hard to hopefully never have another year like I had last year. Uh, Because I feel like that's, you know, unfair to her. I don't want her to have to go through that having a sick dad and I don't want it to get worse and I don't want God forbid her to have to live life without a dad at least not because of something I did um but you know overall I I think it's going well you know like I think I'm good at it like a lot of it kind of comes natural to me maybe because I was an older brother you know or because I was older than a lot of the kids that were my like my parents friends or something you know i was often the oldest in the group and maybe that helped me uh prepare for this uh, because a lot of it has come natural um but look it four years in i have a great daughter she is beautiful and she is sweet and she has a great imagination and an unbelievable memory Uh, And she is feisty and tough sometimes. Uh, And she's passionate about the things she likes. You know, when she locks into a movie, when she likes a movie, she watches that movie and watches that movie. And I kind of love that about her. You know, and she's a blessing. She's the best thing that ever happened to me. And maybe that's a cliche. I don't know. Uh, But it's true, it's from the heart. I didn't write anything down. I just said, you know what, for one last thing today, I'm going to talk about being a father. And four years into it. And uh, so everything I just said, you know, that's like from the heart. I didn't think much about it before I started. And, you know, I didn't take any notes. That's, That's how I feel. It's real. It's raw. You know, I know I talked recently about holding back. And that's why I didn't want to talk about Drew Brees tonight because I know I would have held back. Uh, But this was real. 
I gave you the real tonight. You know, everything that's on my heart. So, thanks to Zach and thanks to Pat for being on the show. Uh, Thanks to you for listening. Uh, There'll be more soon. I'm always booking and interviewing. Good night. Chase Mr.